This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. Are you left wanting more at the end of each episode of this show? Are these short sessions getting you fired up to try new skills for yourself and share the journey with others who are working through the same challenges? Well, the good news is that this podcast is only the beginning. The real action and learning is happening on the Regenerative Skills Discord channel, where you can connect with the whole community to dive deeper into the topics on the show, explore solutions, and share your journey and blooper reel with an active group that can't wait to hear from you. You can get your questions answered and share knowledge and wisdom of your own on a safe platform that, unlike the social media giants, won't steal your personal data to advertise to you in creepy ways. Ditch Facebook and join us where the real skill builders are. Just find the link to the Discord chat on the homepage at regenerativeskills.com. Hey there, everybody, and welcome back. So there's a few farms and organizations here in Spain that have been gaining international attention for their work and initiatives in the past few years. Now, partially through reaching out directly and partly through the Climate Farmers Network, I've been connecting with them to bring their inspiring stories and their innovative knowledge to the farmers community that I help to manage. Now, one of the most established and accomplished of these farms is La Junquera, an 1,100-hectare farm in one of the most environmentally challenging regions of Spain in the southeastern province of Murcia in the Altiplano region. Now, some of you may remember previous interviews that I've done with Alfonso Chico de Guzman, the owner of the farm and one of the driving forces of the Alvelal Cooperative that he helped to found. But today, I'll be speaking with his wife and co-owner of the farm to get a deeper look into all of the projects that she has helped to lead simultaneously. Now, Yannick Schoenhoven is also the co-founder of the Regeneration Academy, a physical hub and model farm in La Junquera, focused on building a space and community to help students become practitioners, entrepreneurs, innovators, and leaders in the field of regenerative agriculture and ecosystem restoration, specialized in semi-arid climates. Now, Yannick has built a reputation in the region ag space as an expert connection builder, weaving partnerships from the local communities around them in Spain, all the way up to the European Union level, along with universities and nonprofits along the way. All of these connections are fueling the positive change that the Regeneration Academy and the farm itself are having on the ecology as well as the human communities around them. Now in this session, we start by exploring the journey that led Yannick to southern Spain and the creation of all the projects that she now helps to coordinate. Yannick talks about the unique challenges that they face in their remote rural area, as well as the climate and ecological challenges of rebuilding the capacity for life on the land there. We also dig into the connections that she's helped to build and strengthen that have brought visibility, support, and recognition to their efforts on the ground while making it possible to include more people in their training and projects. This episode is also a great opportunity to announce the collaboration that I'll be doing with them as I'll be co-facilitating a course in the upcoming year with them about water resource management. Now, at the end of this episode, we'll give an overview of the curriculum that I'll be teaching through a highly immersive project of gathering essential data, co-creating a design for water retention on a micro watershed on their farm, and actually implementing the design on the site. We'll be training participants on a wide range of tools for site design and layout, as well as building experience with everything from hand tools to guiding heavy machinery in order to install the design. You can find all the details about the course, which will be from April 8th to the 11th, in the show notes for the episode on the website. So with all of that out of the way, I'll hand things over now to Yannick Schoenhoven. Hey there and welcome Yannick. 
So good to have you here on the show for the first time. To get us started, could you tell me about how your journey with La Junquera unfolded and has led to the work that you do now? Hi, Oliver. Of course. So telling you about my background. I am from the Netherlands and I studied there sustainable development, uh, after which I worked with Common Land to to uh, research and to um, check what are the common agricultural policies in the south of Spain, which is how I also got to uh, actually work there in the south of Spain, here in the Alvalo territory, and how I met Alfonso, who was uh, farming here. I interviewed many farmers to, to research what are their obstacles for implementing regenerative practices. And I started working for Alvalo. Alvalo is a local association of regenerative farmers here. And I did the monitoring of these farms that were part of Alvalo. After which I said together with Alfonso also that would be great to have um, students here uh, and other people that can come and experience these farms. Because I think it's a great way to learn, but it's also for us a great way to get more knowledge to understand what's happening um, and to uh, exchange experiences and also have more eyes and and hands on the ground and that's how that happened Um, and now we have a successful academy um, besides of course farming full-time very cool now can you tell me about the regen academy what was the vision behind starting that and what are some of the goals that you have for that organization? The Regeneration Academy was started with this idea of uh, giving students a place to come and to experience regenerative agriculture um, that did not exist yet. And we got a lot of requests from people to actually join the farm. And we felt for this to have a real impact, we needed it to um, yeah, to, to structure it better so that uh, both for us and for them, it would have a, have a good impact. And that really, uh, got off the ground and we got a successful program running. Um, and after a while, we also started to host other ac- uh, activities and programs like, a, a Viva El Campo program for local youth. Uh, we started to do crash courses on regenerative agriculture, more for the agro-food professionals, so um, f- more for businesses. And uh, we now work with a lot of um, uh, European projects as well. And our goal is to use this type of education as a tool also to regenerate the land so people can understand what is needed, experience it. Um, also, when they work in the field, make better decisions based on real experiences and uh, in the meantime, learn a lot about what's going on here. So that's for us the most important thing. Besides, uh, we work with local youth because well, like many other farm areas, this is really depopulating. Um, many kids are leaving, so we want to show them that there is a lot possible here and that it can be fun to farm, can be fun to live on a farm, uh, you can make a living and um, yeah, you can do that in many different shapes and forms. So we really want to show with the academy that, yeah, that is possible and 
um, showcase the farmers around us how how to implement certain practices, um, but also that we can be an, an, a base for people to come and ask questions, uh, learn from each other. And um, yeah, for us, that is really a nice way. Uh, the Academy is a great way to to exchange these experiences. And so can you tell me about the challenges that you have in your region? Because it's all well and good to say that, you know, you've got this farm, all these things are have been in transition from organic and now to regenerative, but you have some pretty challenging conditions in this part of Spain. Can you give me an outline of those? <clears throat> yes, <laughs> we live uh, very close to the desert uh, in a semi-arid to arid region with around 300 milliliters of rain a year. Um, we live in the Altiplano, which is the high plains um, at 1100 meters altitude, which means that we have very cold winters. Now it was minus 10 um, and we have very hot summers. And in between, there's not really a spring or an autumn. It's just winter or summer in our uh, area. Uh, we have very calcareous soils with a lot of minerals, very high pH. Um, which means that um, it's very hard to build up organic matter, very hard to build up uh, fungal communities um, because of the high pH and, and all the, the minerals and the salts in the soil. Um, and we are still waiting for rain. <laughs> so this is the second year in a row that it, had, it has almost not rained, um, which is becoming very tricky, I must say. Because even though you can do a lot of these practices that help to build soil, you still need rain to activate it. Um, and that is something we're lacking a lot at the moment. So we're hoping that very soon the rains will come. They should have been there in October. There haven't been any. Um, and we cannot really seed or do anything or even put compost because it's no use when it's not raining. Yeah, that's a really important point that we'll come back to and explore in more detail about the water of this area. We're also in quite a drought right now. We had decent rains back in the spring, but this is going on, I think, three years, at least for our region. I know you're not that far from us, that uh, we've had definitely below average rainfall. And all of the reservoirs in this area are around 30, 20, 30 percent capacity, which is wild for this time of year. That's something you might expect in the summer, but here starting into winter, usually we would have had our, our biggest rainfalls in October and November, and we had almost nothing. So it's pretty wild times. Yeah. It's definitely mm -hmm. emphasizes, like you said, all of the regenerative practices that you can do out in the field are fairly useless if you don't have any moisture to activate them. Going back to yeah. just how important water is to, to triggering the, the cycles of life. But beyond yeah. that too, the challenges of the climate and the terrain that you're on, the farm itself was not in great condition, even given those challenges when you got to it. Tell me about the regeneration yeah. transition process from the state of degradation that the farm was in when you started. Yeah, so 15 years ago, it was a conventional cereal farm with uh, 800 hectares of only cereals and a bit of natural degraded area. And we... It basically didn't have any inputs for many, many, many years, um, not positive or negative inputs. Um, 
And then we started to transition to organic. Why? Because uh, the farm was losing money. Um, there was one worker and it was, um, yeah, it was not really feasible to keep it on. So we transitioned to organic with the grains. We started using older varieties of grains, which had deeper rooting systems, a little bit lower yields, but more stable and uh, were local grains. So then with the organic price that already helped, we started to add um, organic fertilizers to the, to the soil to start to build up more soil. Um, that also started to see an effect and uh, we started to diversify. Uh, that's also when we started really to see, okay, we want to regenerate this landscape. Uh, what else can we do uh, besides being organic? Um, and we said, okay, if we want to regenerate this landscape, there's a few really difficult issues that we have to address. It's like, how do we build up soil? How do we capture more water? And how do we increase the biodiversity in this area? So, we started to diversify our crops. We went from one to 20, over 20 crops. We started to, um, in our case, take out the sheep because they are, were overgrazing a lot and the shepherds were not managing them uh, well enough for that not to happen. Um, and we started to have cows um, under, now, now we do more of a rotational system, but before there were not that many, so. Um, and we uh, started to add compost and organic fertilizers in, um, in, in all the farm, in all the plots, um, with also adding more uh, ground covers. In the cereals, we didn't do um, tilling anymore afterwards, after the uh, harvest. We left the scraps on, there, on the soil for mulch. And um, we let uh, cows in, in the beginning also sheep graze over it. So all of those things kind of happened. And um, we went from one full-time worker. Now we have 25 full-time workers. And it still economically makes sense. So that's a good thing. And we started to also work a lot on water capture. So for us, the water is a huge issue, uh, generally challenging issues because uh, we either have none or uh, everything comes at once, um, which makes it very hard for the soil to take up all that water that comes that one time a year. And we started to dig a lot of ponds, uh, sediment traps, uh, made swales, key line, planted in key line, and that has helped us to reduce erosion in some fields up to 90%. Wow. Um, of course, then you still every now and then have that 300 liter rain in 24 hours. And nobody can do something about that, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, there's, yeah, there's just some, some things in nature that are very hard uh, for us to, to manage, even though in most of the cases with most rains that are a bit more normal, um, we can capture all this water and we stop the erosion before it begins. So th those things have really helped us. And then on the degraded natural areas and also in between the fields, we saw that there's a lacking natural habitats 
because um, everything was cereals um, and there was no trees in the, between the fields, no bushes, no nothing. So we also started to um, plant a lot of hedges and borders, which we now have everywhere. Uh, many, many, many kilometers of hedges and borders. And um, the degraded natural areas, we've started to reforest. So we now have over 35,000 trees and bushes planted all over the, the farm. And we are starting after five years, because this is a very dry area. So after five years, we start to actually see them. Um, and people still think, where are they? And we are like, yeah, they're on the ground. Look at that, how beautiful. Um, people always have to laugh a bit because it's still very tiny. But we do see a difference and we start to see a bigger difference every year. Uh, we start to see that there's areas um, where green grasses have come back, uh, where even in summer uh, there's flowers growing, uh, where even in summer the bees can, you know, pollinators can uh, can use those flowers. And um, we see that in the areas where we do have plants, these bushes and trees, we see birds coming back because the birds, they need a place to sit, uh, to, to, to relax, <laughs> and uh, that's what we provided. So bit by bit, we see really the, the effects of, uh, of everything that we do. And just before we go on to the next area of questioning, I'm really curious about which plants that you've been planting actively have been the most to respond in these these difficult conditions, because like you said, you know, it's five years on, many of them are still just kind of poking up. As far as I know of the native plants of this area, many of them spend the first couple of years really establishing a root system so that they can get through the harsh conditions, especially of summer. And only then once they've been established, start to come up with their vegetation on top. Which of those species have been most successful under the harsh conditions you have? Yeah, so we've seen clearly like four or five that really seem to do quite well and some that really don't do mm. well. So the pine, of course, always does well because it's a pine and it's just uh, wherever you put it. Yeah. Um, great pine here. Um, Which type of pine? Uh, Aleppo pine. Aleppo pine, okay. Yeah. And then um, lavender, Spanish lavender, does mm -hmm. really well. Uh, also great because it flowers in summer. So again, for pollinators, you lengthen the pollinator season. Um, then something that was unexpected for us uh, is the forest rose, Rosa Forestal, mm -hmm. that um, we did not really expect because they are normally in a bit more shady areas, but none of them died. Uh, and they're all quite getting quite big. And it's great because they have fruits. Uh, so again, for uh, for animals, they're they're amazing, uh, and they have flowers. So both. Um, so that was actually quite an interesting thing. And then the retama, uh, it's a nitrogen fixer. They yeah, also Spanish do. broom, yeah. Yeah, Spanish broom. Yeah. yeah. Um, and they get quite big, which is also interesting. And they have flowers also. So they got these. They have really flowers. beautiful flowers. I was always yeah. surprised when I saw them up close. They look like orchids, the little yellow bloom. Yeah. 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 So those are really like our 
yeah our success uh, plant let's say and then uh we have planted a lot of caribous like a lot of oaks like uh, st- uh home oaks or um yeah the the oak that uh, grows here uh but they don't do so well because they need shade in the first years of the yeah, yeah yeah and one thing we do not have a lot of is shade yeah. uh, in this area so what we now do is we plant them very close to the oak uh, to the to the pine which then helps to provide some shade but still it's not a successful plant yeah to, uh, plant for us here in this in this area understandable really interesting yeah especially since i'm involved in so many reforestation projects with life Terra. i know you guys co- collaborate with them yeah. as well. Yeah. Uh, people are always asking me you know like which are the ones that are going to survive without any maintenance and I always look for the hardiest early successional species that can do well in tougher areas than even they have and then start to expand the planting list from there so it's really good to know what's working yeah. for you yeah and and indeed it's again it's quite tough plants uh that seem to work well and and the ones that need a bit more water they just they uh they have uh difficulties yeah, well, I mean, I guess the hope is that once these really hardy species get established, they will start to create the conditions that would make the next stage of planting more successful. Yeah. And over yeah. time, and of course, this is going to move more slowly for you, given your challenges, there will be the conditions to start to bring in things that maybe you could even get a yield or a harvest from. Yeah. Okay, so... Moving now from the ecological aspect of the project, I know you're closely involved with the efforts to revive the rural area as well. Like you said, you were doing some workshops for local high school students, but there's also a small village on the property that you've been working to help to revive and to repopulate. Can you tell me about that project? Yeah, so um, as part of the farm, there was once a village um, of 150 people, actually. Uh, that lived and worked on the farm. Uh, But then 60 years ago, when the tractor came, that changed uh, because they were not needed anymore. So they all left. And with that, actually, the whole village kind of crumbled um, until there was not really one livable house left. And 15 years ago, or 13, my husband, uh, he got back to the village and he started to rebuild a house um, and started to live in it without water, without electricity, without basically anything. And bit by bit, uh, transforming it into uh, a livable house. Um, And when I came, we started to also do that with more houses. And now we have six six houses, uh, an office space, a hub for education. Uh, We have a workshop space. And um, it's actually very comfortable now to live here. Um, and we want to keep doing that until we fix all the houses, which will be, you know, um, something we do bit by bit each year. And it's, yeah, it's really nice because we live very far away from everyone. Uh, it's like 50 kilometers away to, to a village. Um, and it's nice to have people around. Um, it's nice to be able to work together. And, and the people in the village, they also work in the projects uh, or some work as entrepreneurs and they have their own projects. 
Um, so that's really interesting for us. And, and also I think for them, it's really nice to live in such a place. Um, they're really enjoying it. And we can all kind of help each other in that way. This is so important because this trend of depopulation in rural Spain has been going on for arguably about 150 years from what I've heard from other people around. And the story being this common, you don't often hear of successful examples of people starting to reverse the trend and getting to bring people, especially younger people, back to these rural areas through mm -hmm. opportunity and incentive. What have been some yeah. of the biggest challenges other than just getting the funds and, and building up the infrastructure to make this happen? What have been some of the other challenges that you've come up with in this effort? I think uh, there's a couple of challenges. I think it is still far away. Um, <laughs> you know, you still have to drive 50 kilometers to go to a doctor or to see a dentist or to do, go to the gym or whatever you want to do. Um, so that I think is still quite a big challenge. Um, schools close by, there aren't any, um, I think also for people, yeah. Um, it, it's, it's difficult because yeah, there's just not any other people around, you know? So you're very close to each other in a sense. Um, and that has uh, definitely more, a lot more nice things than bad things, but it's also sometimes challenging because sometimes you might want to get out there, you know, uh, or, or see someone else for, for, for a bit. But uh, that's just, yeah, not so easy. Um, so I would say that's maybe a bit of a challenge. And I think for the rest, yeah, something that we already find quite normal here is that yeah, sometimes there's no internet, sometimes there's no water, sometimes there's no electricity, sometimes that happens for five days. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, yeah, in, in modern society, we're not so used to that anymore. Yeah. I remember this from living in rural Guatemala, but I haven't experienced it since I've been back to Spain, but I definitely know those challenges. I'm curious too, because you've done an incredible job about not only making this project visible uh, around Europe internationally and such, but also creating close connections with other organizations. Like I remember you said you, you came in from Common Land in the beginning and that you've worked with ecosystem restoration communities, which is how I first found out about you and the, the original ecosystem restoration camp. But also you're now part of the Lighthouse Network. Like you mentioned, the other one that you visited in Cuba, you've done yeah. research programs with universities. Tell me about not only the vision of these collaborations, but how they've contributed to moving the project forward. Yeah, I think um, I, I, before I studied sustainable development, I studied international relations and I really, my interest in, in, in making those type of relations happen. Um, I, yeah, I think in the beginning, what we did was we would contact universities more uh, we would ask them for certain things and we would uh, organize maybe visits for them to see our farm um, and that's when they got interested so now often also they ask us to be involved in certain things um, we got our first European project in which we were involved which really helped us to get into the world also of the European projects uh, because when you are, have been in one, it is easier to to also get into another one. Um, and that made 
doing research a lot easier because then there was some funding to actually do these researches and uh, spread the knowledge gained in this research. Um, and in the meantime, we worked a lot with students and the students came from everywhere. So then again, there is this interaction between what we can give the student, what the student can give to us. And, and, and yeah, uh, they would maybe talk to their teachers about Nahukira and the teacher would be doing this or that. And, and that's actually, that's also how we got into the Lighthouse Network because one of the students said, hey, my teacher is doing this. I think you would fit. And then we talked and then it was a fit. And then um, we were very lucky to be able to uh, to be, become part of this amazing network that has uh, now 12 farmers over the whole world in different systems, um, all pioneers. And it gives us also a really nice opportunity to, to feel part of a group because as a as a pioneer farmer, you're often quite uh, alone in a sense, and and also to see other examples, to learn from each other, and to be amongst each other as equals. Um, and also, again, through that network, we are doing a lot of research. We are now in the process of getting into a, a big European project uh, with which we can share all this knowledge amongst all of Europe. So yeah, and then kind of the ball just starts rolling. Incredible. I mean, it goes hand in hand with something that has been repeated so many times on this show, which is the importance of the social aspect of any of these regenerative projects. It's very hard yeah. to make or uh, to reach the, the potential of an ecological project if you're disconnected from the community and the actors in your area. And you've done a fantastic job about making those connections and finding ways to share knowledge, but also bring people to learn on your space, as well as bring that injection of in ideas and innovation that comes from just opening up your place. Now, Definitely. along this lines, let's go back to what we were going to talk about earlier about this this linchpin of the success of the ecological project being water and how this has been something that has posed a challenge throughout every step of the different projects of replanting, of adapting the cultivars. And, you know, as we find ourselves in a prolonged drought now is showing just how necessary it is for things to move forward. Can you talk a little bit more in detail about the earthworks and the water projects that have already been done there? And then we can talk about how we're going to move forward. Yeah, definitely. So in the beginning, we started with uh, digging some ponds. Um, we had um, a water expert coming to the farm. I don't remember his name. It was uh, seven years ago or eight years ago. And um, he told us where the water was. <laughs> um, I, I, he felt it. And um, then we started digging there. And... Indeed, there was water there. So we dug a pond, which was crazy work because it was the biggest pond ever made for us. Um, we had a, a tractor involved. Then we, all of a sudden, there was water coming out of the ground really fast, like a lot. Then the tractor kind of slide in the mud of that water and it had to be pulled up by another tractor. Then that tractor slid in. Then we had to get a very big pump to pump out the water so we could get the tractor set and keep on digging. And uh, in the end, we had a really nice big pond. Um, and it was amazing because it became a bit of a swimming pool. And then um, 
and was dug in a place where all the set like all the water from one field would go from a neighboring field and it uh yeah it really provides a lot of ecosystem services let's say then we had that one done and we started digging more smaller ones because we learned our lesson um and those ones were built below that big one to kind of capture the water that the big one wasn't capturing. And we started doing that everywhere. And over time, what we learned is that it's better to make smaller ones and then see how they function in, in your system. Do they have water all year round? Do they hold the water? Do they leak the water? Uh, are they more, um, what have animals come? to them you know um and then some we would dig bigger when we saw that they would work in a certain way and some not um and with all of those we would make some sediment traps higher up to make sure that the first bits of sediments wouldn't all end up in the pond um and after that we also started to dig swales um because we saw that only sediment traps wasn't enough. We would actually want to divide the water a bit more over the whole field, give it some time to infiltrate already in the field and not more at the bottom. And we also learned our lesson with that because we made a few that were quite shitty, um, that were not entirely straight uh, or that broke down very fast or that were very tiny. And now we know better how to make them we also know that in the sandy soils, there's not really use in making them for us, uh, but in the clay soils, yes. Um, so yeah, that's how we kind of started our journey in that. And what have been some of the main things that you've learned in the process of what to change, what to do better? I mean, I know you said that you would go for a chain of smaller ponds or retention bodies rather than a huge, massive one uh, going back now. Um, and that the sandy soils don't work as well for the swales as something with a bit more structure like the clay. What have been some of your other observations since the process of installing all of these started? It's always good to get out there when it rains um, because that's when you see, you know, that's when you see what gets in there from where does it come in, uh, where does it go, uh, where are the pain points in your in your design, you know. Um, so yeah, when it rains, we put on our boots and we get out there and it's really fun. Um, one time when it rained 200 liters, we got out to the big pond at night to see if it would hold because it had a very big dam, uh, and it was breaking. So then we went out with everyone with straw bills, with, uh, shovels to try to get the water to not break the dam. Um, but yeah, it's, it's very important to to see what's happening, you know? And so with those observations, like some of the things that you might've done different, what have been some of the transformations, the positive benefits that you've observed since a lot of these have started to really work and hold water? Um, we've seen that the wetland areas are becoming a lot bigger mm. uh, around these uh, ponds. We see that many of these areas have green grass also in summer, which is quite crazy in our area. Um, we've seen a lot of tracks of animals. We've seen frogs coming back after a week and then 
we wonder where did they come from because there's no water very close by. <laughs> um, a lot of uh, dragonflies, a lot of uh, uh, wild pollinators come to drink because they need that space to, you know, within a few kilometers of their, their home. And um, different species, different varieties of, of plants are growing. Uh, a lot more wetland plants can grow or, or different types of trees. Um, and it takes a time, as in it takes a few years, like let's say five, uh, for something to really show. Mm. You know, of course, you see year one, you see the frogs are back and, uh, you know, you see some other dragonflies and stuff. And then year two, you see also bigger animals starting to use that space more and more. And then year three, you see also this vegetation change and then uh, it goes bit by bit, you know, so also it's very important to have a lot of patience. Definitely. So what are some of the goals that you have for the water body installations moving forward? Obviously, you've got a lot of space. You've learned a lot in the process. What are you still trying to accomplish? So we would like to have swales everywhere on our farm um, because we see them as a great addition to a field of crops. Uh, even um, if the water capture is only a small part of the year, uh, you can make it into a hedge. Uh, it's an area of biodiversity. It's not uh, touched by humans, which helps a lot for, for animals as well. Um, it can be a, a habitat corridor, um, so it has many functions. So we would like to do that more and more. Um, also, ponds, we just keep digging ponds. You know, when we see that it's a place where it would be relevant, we, we just keep doing that because that is just a great way of creating small ecosystems everywhere. Um, and that creates diversity again. Marvelous. So with this vision moving forward, can you tell me about the course that we're going to be doing together this spring? Yes, definitely. I'm very happy. Uh, we're going to host a course on uh, water management and uh, teaching everything we know and everything that we've learned about this in the past uh, many years. And um, also how to actually do it. So not only the theory, but we're going to get on the field we're going to actually learn how to make a swale, uh, actually learn how to uh, dig a pond, uh, design a pond, dig it, and, uh, and, and, and what you can do with it afterwards as well. So there's going to be a lot of practical knowledge and uh, a lot of theoretical knowledge as well. So we're also going to talk about what are the laws relating to water management, you know, because not all land can be touched to make a dam or to make you know any other um practice uh, regarding that and what are the rules um also what is done in 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 spain when it comes to the protection of these water bodies or protection of new water bodies and how could you be involved in that so yeah i'm really looking forward to it and i am sure it's uh, it's going to be amazing yeah, and I'm so glad that you're bringing that knowledge and experience to this course that we'll be doing together, because that's one of the areas that I haven't quite learned yet, is navigating the legal and the regulatory system here in Spain, which is famously cumbersome, and is necessary to understand in order to get this type of work done. I mean, so over four days, like you said, much of what we're going to be doing is going to be practical and out on the land. 
I'm actually doing my best right now to set up a lot of the theoretical learnings in videos so that we can send them ahead of time, get everybody on the same page, and then spend more time out in a campo when we're on site. But over four days, we're going to find a miniature water catchment on your farm and treat it as a project in and of itself that ties into the rest of the landscape. Um, we're still looking around to evaluate which would be the best place to do this in, but it gives an example of a microcosm or maybe even more along the scale that most people will be working on how to make the considerations. We'll be going out there and reading the landscape, looking for all of the observations, the indications from the biology, from the geology of the area to inform our design. We'll be bringing in the theory from the expanded water cycle, as well as the context of the challenges, like you mentioned, and creating a design along with the students to, like you said, bring in some of the elements and the options of things that have worked well for you and that could be trialed on a smaller version because we're always learning in, in new places, right? To see how this could work not only there, but potentially be scaled up to other parts of the farm. Yeah, really nice. Yeah, so one of the, the best parts about being able to do a small project like this in the field is that we're going to go through an entire range of skill sets that you can then bring to wherever else that you might be because they're, they're widely transferable. Things like working with laser levels and bunyip levels, both high-tech and low-tech, to mark out contour and level across a landscape. Using that as a template then to add on elements based on the observations that we've made from the field. And we have a few different types of tools and even machinery that we'll be going through how to work alongside with in order to install elements of a water design at various scales. What are some of the tools that you found most useful in installing these in the past? What do you have access to there? Well, we have an excavator, which is very key to digging ponds. Uh, I wouldn't recommend it being done by hand. Um, before we we would just rent one, but now we we have one for ourselves, which is great because now we do a lot more of that uh, all the time. Um, and uh, I would say for us for the making of the swills, we use a tractor and uh, a tool behind to to dig the trench. Um, we also have a laser, which we use for the making of the of the contours, of course. Um, and that's about it. I mean, you don't need a lot more. Even I would say if you want to begin with doing anything, indeed with a, an excavator, you get quite far. Yeah, definitely. And one of the things that I'm really excited to bring into this course, which I feel a lot of other water management courses that I've seen and even participated in kind of gloss over, but can definitely contribute to the efficacy of the design in the long term, is a management strategy over, over time because these things are going to evolve and change a lot as they fill up, as we figure out how well they store water in larger or smaller rain events, and as biology starts to move in. And we're going to be going over some of the preparations after doing the earthworks, such as reseeding, replanting, and also inoculation of biology so that these start to perform as the little focal points of biodiversity that they're capable of being even faster than they would inoculate themselves just being left to their own devices. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So can you give me the details about this? When is this going to be? How can people sign up? And what should they be prepared for in coming? 
So people can sign up through our website. Um, there is a form on our website that if you go to courses, it's called Curso en Gestión de Recursos Hídricos. We also have the Spanish website uh, where you can also sign up. It's going to be in Spanish. So yeah, that's worth noting. I am going to be teaching this alongside with you and Jacobo in Spanish with, of yes. course, the option to translate into English. But this is really focused on the local community and what can be done in the Spanish context. Yes, it's going to be from the 9th to the 12th of April um, in the spring. And you have a few options. So you can either uh, have uh, lodging included or if you have your own space or whatever, uh, you can also choose the option uh, without lodging. And um, if you choose with lodging, it is in Sechin, which is a half an hour drive from our farm. It's a beautiful uh, uh, village palace, um, which is a great place to uh, also get some uh, yeah, local culture and uh, to understand a bit about uh, the history. Fantastic. So with those details, we're also going to be publishing this information. Uh, well, I'll give links on the show notes for this episode. And I'm going to be giving sneak peeks about the information and the material that's going to be covered on the course through our social media together in the lead up to, to the actual date. Yes, perfect. And um, if you have any questions about the course, you can always contact us uh, either through the website, Instagram, or LinkedIn, even whatever you uh, you need. I'm so excited about this. I've been wanting to get down to you guys' farm for years. I mean, we've got two episodes on this show already with Alfonso. It's about time I got to speak with you. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, it is. It is. Well, uh, I'll see you soon. I'm really and... looking forward to it. All right, I'll direct everybody else to those links. And thanks so much for taking time. We'll be in touch. Thank you, Oliver. See you around. Bye-bye. Thanks once again to Yannick. Remember that if you're interested in joining us in April for the water management course, you can learn more and sign up through the form on the show notes for the episode at regenerativeskills.com. I've also linked to a list of other events that they have scheduled in the new year, as well as social media links to follow their work. Now, before we wrap this up, just remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the learning resources, design and coaching services, in-person courses, and interactive community that are available through Regenerative Skills. The Discord server is our free community where you can connect with other like-minded listeners, exchange ideas, stories, tips, and resources, as well as interact with me directly and quite a few former guests from this show. Our Instagram account, at regen underscore skills, is the best place to see the projects that me and the team are working on, both for clients and collaborators, as well as on our own properties. I'll also be announcing the certification courses, workshops, and gatherings that we've got coming up later this year. If you're interested in getting dedicated support for your own project, you can now schedule a free planning session with one of our team members through the request form on our website. You can also find all the links, show notes, and past resources there at regenerativeskills.com. We truly believe that no matter your experience, your knowledge, abilities, resources, or background, you can be a powerful force for regeneration on this planet, and we're here to help you find your path. So as always, remember to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way. Thanks.